0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I really don't like this concept of teaching people to see the person and not the disability. Then why can't people see a person with a disability and not freak out or not feel uncomfortable? You know, it's like that weird backhanded compliment that we get when people say, you know, oh, I don't think of you as disabled because you're my friend or you're really cool or because you're just like me. And can we not be all of those things? Can we not be cool and likeable and people's friends but not also be proud of our disabilities? I kind of hope that we can. I'm Bridget Evans and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. Like some food for thought, tune into Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Talia Morag about tracking dogma. And this is part two of a two-part interview. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Now, I, th- I think where we left off last time was we were... Could you give a bit of a recap on what we spoke about last episode?
1: Well, we, we first of all explained what it is that I'm calling a tracking dogma. Again, it's not like it's a, the, the term dogma is an added term for me. What there is in the literature are tracking views of emotions, according to which emotions track all kinds of occurrences in the social and natural environment that bear on our well-being. So fear would track dangers. Anger would alert us to wrongs that are being done to us. Joy would track benefits. Sadness would track loss, etc., etc. That's a very dominant view, the orthodox view in the philosophy of emotion. There are, of course, many versions of it, and everyone has a different story regarding what tracking, what kind of what uh, process exactly is involved in those tracking mechanisms. But that's the general view and it is uh, assumed, it is not questioned and it is not taking into account a whole range of experiences that I personally see everywhere in my life and the lives of the people I care about and the lives of the characters on in TV series that I like the most where emotions don't seem to track anything useful, quite the contrary actually. Uh, Occasions like being angry at a pencil, uh, fearing moths, grieving over a lost jacket that you hardly even used and have no special sentimental value. People that rub you the wrong way, as we say, and we just don't like them or find them creepy. And it doesn't seem like our feelings track anything useful about them at all. It's just a general feeling that they cause us to have. So I see kind of occasions like that where emotions don't seem to track anything; uh, that they don't fit the circumstances that caused them, and it's those uh, tracking views have very little to say uh, regarding those experiences. So there were a few views, few tracking views here in of the more strict one. That says that emotions will, by and large in the main, succeed to track dangers in the environment, right? It's sort of a sensitive radar, it's a sensitive mechanism. And whenever they do, when the radar sort of rings or alerts to danger, it is indeed a danger. So the system is both sensitive to the dangers in the environment, the fear system, and accurate some people are a bit more relaxed about the sensitivity. and They will say, look, the system is more or less accurate. So whenever you're afraid, there is a danger in the environment, but that doesn't mean that you will track all the dangers in the environment. And then finally, we have the normative tracking dogma, as I call it, where the view would be a lot more relaxed about both accuracy and sensitivity. So it would say, look, there's a radar Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it's sensitive to whatever it is in the environment that should make it ring its alarm bells, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's accurate, and sometimes it's not. But by and large, in the main, emotions still inherently aim at tracking dangers, wrongs, losses, benefits, etc., even if that aim may not be achieved properly in practice. So these were the three sort of possibilities to hold the tracking dogma, and none of them seems to me to do justice to those other occasions where emotions don't seem to track anything. And then we spoke about how exactly we could examine those things and see whether or not or to what extent emotions are useful in this way. And I was saying that in the end, well, I guess that's where we, that's where we arrived at, that there, there are two main ways of investigating this question. One of them is the scientific way where you conduct controlled experiments in the lab, putting people in specific situations, often quite extreme situations, like watching gory films and seeing a reaction or asking people to remember very significant events in their lives and to recall the emotions they felt, emotions like disgust of cockroaches or things like that, quite experiences that can be isolated and controlled in lab conditions. And that can teach you something about emotions in those circumstances, and it is indeed often emotions that do seem to track something in the environment. But the problem is is that they represent a very small sample of what we would normally call our emotional life, right? So they represent something like feeling a thrill when you go to the lunar park or see a thriller in the movies or think, oh, what a cute baby, when you look at an advertisement or something like that. But most of our emotional lives include circumstances that spread over time and space much more than these, than uh, these sort of controlled circumstances in the experiments or in the Luna Park or when watching an advertisement. Most of our emotional lives occur with our partners, our family members, our uh, children, our colleagues, people we have long-term relationships with. Um, and those are going to be very difficult to examine in an objective way, objective sort of controlled scientific way. So in, for, those, for that aspect of our emotional lives, which is much larger in proportion we would need different kind of empirical access to things like just our ordinary practices around emotions to do with uh, how we control emotions how we demand other people to control their emotions how our parents educate us regarding the way to express emotions various expressions in everyday language centuries of fiction novels and recently movies and tv series Things like that that are not scientific ways of inquiry, but nonetheless provide us with experiences that can teach us about how and when we emote when we do. So that's basically uh, where we were. These two ways of empirically studying emotions.
0: So how can you know whether the emotions of the human adult by and large track correlational themes?
1: Correlational themes? Correlational themes are those those groups of environment, organism relation, wrongs, dangers, benefits, losses, weaknesses, etc. How do we know in the end whether that people who hold the tracking view are wrong or not. <laughs> That's, uh, given we have these very, very different empirical methods of trying to research this question and this great disagreement about it, how can we know? The short answer is that we cannot, I'm afraid. I think we cannot know. So. I see these experiences where emotions don't fit the circumstances that cause them, like right? things I've mentioned before, like fear of moths, anger at a pencil, etc. I see these occasions a lot. In my own life, in the, the people I know, the, my, the various fictional characters, etc. Emotions that don't seem to track anything, not a danger, not a wrong, or not a loss. But many people who endorse tracking views... Don't pay much attention to those experiences. They will say that these are exceptions to the rule. It's hard to imagine how we could make some grand experiment that would determine who is right. I'm just going to say to those people, look, I think you're conveniently blind to the many overreactions and weird emotions that you and your intimates go through. And that you ignore them, turn a blind eye to them, often because it's the more convenient thing to do. People who hold a tracking view would disagree. They would say, no, when I look at at, at my uh, partner, they seem pretty reasonable in their emotional reactions. When I look in the mirror, I look at myself and I see that my emotions uh, seem to track uh, anger, uh, seem to track dangers, wrongs, etc., that they're justified by the occasion that that gave rise to them. Now, how? what am I going to say to these people? I can say, well, it seems to me like you're a bit self-deceived. How we experience, and then of course we'll say no, right? Self-deception, I, I would say, well, self-deception is like that. It's successful. You're unable to see yourself in your overreactions and unfitting emotions because you're self-deceived and you don't even see it because this self-deception works. How we experience our emotional lives depends on the vision we have of them. You see, it is, if you hold a tracking view, you will see tracking And it's likely that you are mostly impressed by what is known in the literature as basic emotions, right? These are emotions that have something to do with our evolutionary history, such as disgust of uh, rancid food or anger when someone hits, hits us. Personally, I am more impressed by the prevalence of people who seek psychotherapy. That's the phenomenon that drives me into the study of emotions in the first place. So my vision of our emotional life is, uh, of everyone's emotional life, is different. I see lack of awareness, pervasive self-deception, emotions and moods that don't seem to have an easy explanation to them. And each of those is, is a vision. It's not like it's a theory that the data is going to determine whether it is correct or incorrect. It's a vision that serves to interpret the data. It's the sort of the glasses through which we see the reality of our emotional lives. And that's why, because this disagreement is more about a way of seeing our experience, I don't think it is resolvable and I don't think we're going to get an answer it, but it, it is going to have what vision we hold is going to have an impact on how we run our lives and how we manage our emotions in our relationships
0: you're listening to radical philosophy on radio 3cr 855 on your am dial and i'm speaking with dr talia morag about tracking dogma how can we have epistemic access to most of our emotional reactions that take place in our everyday lives?
1: Well, I think that the the best access we can have, it's not going to be it's not going to be an objective access of the sort that science would like. It's going to be subjective. And it's going to come through our relationships, through our capacity to read people and how they feel and having a long-term acquaintance with them that enables us to begin to understand what causes them to emote when they do. It's much easier to know those that we are close to than strangers given the often idiosyncratic ways in which we express emotions and given our long-term familiarity with their emotional history, which I believe has a lot to do with how people react here and now. And it's much easier to know the emotions of the people that are close to us, even if there are challenges there too, than it is to know our own emotions. So again, I think that When we look in the mirror, to speak metaphorically, we tend to not see various aspects of ourselves that we would have some kind of an aversion to, that we feel guilty about or embarrassed about or ashamed about or we just does not suit our self-image in some kind of way. So it is easier to know your partner in a way than it is to know uh, yourself. And it's easier for your partner to know you than for you to know yourself. And of course, there's psychotherapy, which is a way of studying people's emotions. And the kind of psychotherapy that I'm talking about is psychoanalysis, sort of broadly conceived. Psychotherapy that is long-term, that takes into account that people are not aware of many of their emotions of desire and desires and that also looks at things from an imaginative perspective and when i say that i mean that when you look at somebody reacting emotionally from a psychoanalytic point of view you ask yourself how is this similar to or reminds you of in some imaginative way to previous emotional reactions in the in the history of that person, which is a different question than to ask, what is it in the environment that sort of fits this emotional reaction? It's more like, okay, something triggered the emotional reaction here. There is a cause, and whatever it is, it is somehow reminiscent of previous emotional experiences in that person's life or in that person's fantasy life. So this imaginative perspective is something distinctive to psychodynamic psychotherapy. And in this kind of therapy, the therapist is not an expert. It's He's not, or he or she, they're not an expert of, of the patient or an expert of people. They don't have a theory. At least the best uh, kind of psychoanalyst that I'm envisioning would be like that. They would acknowledge that they don't have... Pre-determined answers to questions about what causes this or that person to emote when they do. They, they get to know their patients or the people that come to see them over a long period of time listening to them speak trying to find all kinds of uh, connections between their here and now challenges and past experiences and fantasy life. And they get to know the person as the person is also getting to know themselves. It's a sort of a joint project. So it's a different kind of of an epistemic access. It's not, the, the therapist here is not conceived of as some kind of an expert or a scientist. In fact, many of those therapists would learn about their patients through listening not only to the patient, but also to their own feelings and experiences during those uh, sessions. So it's a very different approach. It's more like, again, an approach that has to do with relationships, with understanding that an emotion is something that happens often as part of an interaction. Do you think that
0: a lot of our emotional responses seem counterproductive?
1: Well, yes, this is precisely where I'm different to people who hold a tracking view and who think that emotions, their role is sort of to cope with the environment in a way that promotes well-being. I think that many of our emotions can be said to be counterproductive. In fact, they often contribute to our misery and hardship in life. Emotions that don't fit, like unjustified anxiety, that causes performance uh, problems, right? That impairs our performance in a test or in a public speaking or whatnot. Uh, angry overreactions—that's a big one. Unjustified torturing guilt, frequent shame and embarrassment that's motivated by some kind of a desire that cannot be achieved to be perfect, et cetera, et cetera. And, and these un- unfitting emotions is only a part, are only a part of this uh, picture of counterproductive emotions. Some emotions can seem to us to be perfectly fitting, as if they do track something useful in the social or natural environment, and yet they still make us miserable. So, for example, the philosopher Jonathan Lear talks about a person that feels betrayed very often. And he's always able to justify his feelings uh, by referring to the situation in which they arose. Right? And he sees himself as sensitive and accurate in his emotions, right? as tracking betrayal. And maybe he's right. Maybe he is tracking the, the betrayal he feels is actually there. And yet this pattern of betrayal makes him miserable. And the question is here, how come he's so focused on occasions that would make him feel like that? Or could he be contributing to those occasions, to those occasions happening in the first place, as as Jonathan Lear seems to imply? Right. So on every occasion, he may seem to be tracking betrayal or a wrong, but the pattern as a whole, there's something wrong with it. Right. The fact that these occasions keep happening to him, that doesn't seem to be explicable by a tracking view. And it doesn't seem like a very fruitful or useful pattern of emotional reaction to have. Now, emotions also play a counterproductive role in society. They are responsible for the election of Donald Trump, for example, to the denial of global warming, to the increasing number of people that don't vaccinate their children. Right? This is not exactly... Good for uh, anyone, or for the survival of the species as a whole, for that matter. But that said, it's also important to emphasize that I don't think emotions are inherently against our well-being, or something like that. I don't think uh, I just um, uh, don't see them as inherently promoting our well-being. The emotions are what they are. They don't, as, as far as I can tell. They don't have a role, an an intrinsic role to do with our well-being, and it's only after the fact, after the emotion already happened, that we can judge them as having been good or bad for us. So in the end, emotions, and also sexual desire, for that matter, provide us with motivations to act. Right. So fear comes together with uh, running away or attacking anger often with attacking uh, etc and and without emotions it doesn't seem like we would be doing much and in that sense we couldn't live there without them
0: are there any alternatives to the strong and weak versions of tracking dogma
1: there is the there is as I mentioned before when it comes to people who still hold tracking views and those are virtually everyone when it comes to the philosophy of emotion. There would be the normative uh, tracking dogma, and that would that would be people who hold the view that emotions aim at tracking dangers, wrongs, benefits, etc., but may not succeed to do so very well. And those views again. where I would disagree with them, I guess things are more tricky when it comes to that kind of view because here, the normative tracking people and myself would see more or less the same ordinary experiences where often the tracking doesn't seem to work, only that they will see it as failures of tracking and won't be able to explain those failures, whereas I just see a different process that is not a tracking process at all and this process we haven't actually talked about it in this interview so far maybe i just hinted toward it a little bit is a process that i propose it's an it's a view that i propose in my book emotions imagination and the limits of reason and it's a view that's inspired by psychotic practice and to say it very quickly what causes me to have an emotional reaction is something here and now that imaginatively reminds me of other past emotional experiences or fantasies and causes me to see the current situation in front of me in terms of those past experiences or fantasies. Right? There's no tracking going on here. And whether or not our emotional reactions whether those that are happening right this second or those in the past that are sort of mobilized in the experience can be retroactively said to have been caused by dangers, wrongs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is an entirely uh, contingent matter. So that is the kind of an alternative that I'm proposing that, again, is inspired by, by psychoanalysis, and that doesn't involve
0: a tracking process at all. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And I've been speaking with Dr. Talia Morag about tracking dogma. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program, and stay tuned for Swing and Sway.